Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Good scientists tell us that within our brain, there are a hundred billion neurons, individual nerve cells, that are transmitting all kind of information and receiving all kind of information. And they further tell us that each of those hundred billion neurons, nerve cells, each of those has at least 10,000 interconnections with other neurons so they can send information and receive. And they tell us that it takes a fraction of a second you can't even really measure how brief it is. It takes a, just a fraction of a fraction of a second to receive information, to interpret it, to catalog it, to sort it, to connect it, to analyze it, and then to act on it. And that our brains are capable of doing that with a million pieces of information every fraction of a second. It's amazing, isn't it? When you think about our brains, the information that comes through our, our brains, comes through our sense of sight and touch and taste and all the rest, it's amazing what's going on in our brains. Billions, billions of neutrons. You know, that activity enables some of us to have remarkable memories and remember things that happened when we were three. Or to remember complicated equations or long lists of information. Some people, because of that activity up there, they have remarkable memories. And other people, like artists and musicians, people that do things, intricate things with their hands, like talented surgeons, they're able, with that activity, to control their muscles in incredible ways and to focus and to do incredible things. Athletes, because of what's going on in their brain, are able to jump higher than we can imagine and farther and run longer and do more and bigger and stronger and faster. It all starts in the brain. It all starts there. Somebody, I read an article that said on any given day, any given second of any given day, that if you put together all of the computing power of every computer in the world, every laptop, every desktop, every device, every, every server, every phone, every iPad, if you put all of that computation work together, any given second of any given day, that it doesn't begin to equal the, the brain activity of just 64 average people. Our brains are amazing. They're amazing. It's easily the most amazing thing that we know anything about is right between our ears, our own mind, our mind. Now, Jesus is going to ask a question of us today that will touch on the subject of our magnificent minds. Let me give you the setup. 
you'll want to turn to Mark chapter 9, but before the passage that we'll look at where he deals with our magnificent minds just by way of setup has been an event we call the transfiguration. Jesus has taken three of his inner circle to the top of a secluded mountain, and there he has been glorified physically before them. He has glowed brighter than the sun. He's been transformed before their very eyes. And then he has been visited by two Old Testament worthies, Moses and Elijah, who have also appeared in a glorified state. And Jesus and these other two have been conversing while the inner circle of three are bowed down with their face to the ground. But every once in a while they peek up and take a look, and they're overwhelmed by what they see. They're overwhelmed. One of them, Simon Peter, who's there that day and sees all of that, he is beside himself, and he doesn't even know what to say. And In fact, it, it says, Simon Peter, not knowing what to say, went ahead and said something really stupid. How about I build three tents that you all can stay in? But they leave that site. Moses and Elijah depart. Jesus comes back to normal. And they start down the side of the hill, and, and they're chattering about what they've just seen. Now, the next event is going to be a compassionate healing of a boy, a young boy. At the request of his desperate father, this young boy is going to be compassionately healed of an affliction that if we saw it, we would call grand mal seizures, epilepsy. But it's really the result of a demonic presence in his life that is trying to destroy his body. And Jesus will heal that child and give him back restored to his father. Well, those are the two principal events. But there's some connecting tissue between them that I want us to look at for a minute. Mark chapter 9, verse number 9. These two stories, the transfiguration and the compassionate healing, they're held together by what happens in these few verses. And as they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, chapter 9. He, Jesus, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. The most amazing thing they'd ever seen in their life, and they can't talk about it. He's got his reasons for that. But he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So he brings up the idea that one day I'm going to rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement. They jump on that. They're all over that discussing with one another, between the three of them, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And let me just say that they're distressed as they're talking about that, and you'll see in a moment why. And so they ask him, saying, why is it that the scribes, the professionals, the people who know the law backwards and forwards, the teachers in Israel, the experts, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah, whom they've just seen, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They ask Jesus that. Because they've just seen Elijah. It's on their mind. And he said to him, said to them, and here is one of his 295 questions. Elijah does first come. In other words, he endorses what the scribes are saying, that Elijah comes before Messiah. 
before the anointed one, before the king, before the son of man. Elijah does come first and restore all things. And here's his question, yet how? And it's really more of a why question. Why then is it written that the son of man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has come, indeed he's come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. So here in this connecting tissue between these two dramatic events, Jesus lays out a question. Why is it? Why is it? How is it that it's written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, they've got a couple of problems. And that's what Jesus is addressing here as they're coming down that mountain and they're chatting about what they've seen and what they could expect. And Jesus throws out, you know, I'm going to rise from the dead. He's getting them ready for that event. And here's their problem. Number one, if the Messiah is going to rise from the dead, then that means that the Messiah has got to die. And they're having a terrible time processing that. They're just now believing that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He's God come to earth. And on top of that, he's also the anointed one, the king, the long-awaited Messiah. You see, the people were always looking for Messiah, but they never dreamed that God would be their Messiah. And they're just coming to realize that. They've just seen him glorified like they've never seen anybody before. And they're convinced that he's who he said he is. And now he's laying on them that he will rise again. And that means that he has to die. And they cannot process that. You're going to die. And so that's one of their problems as they're walking down. The other problem is that their teachers, the scribes, the professionals, the experts, they tell us that before the Messiah will come, that Elijah must come first. And so their question is, is that what we just saw? We just saw Elijah, and so now we're going to see you as Messiah. Is that what's playing out here? Jesus corrects their idea. That's not what had just happened. Jesus corrects them. He tells them, in effect, that the scribes said, expect the person of Elijah. Expect Elijah to come personally. But he points out to them what is true. But the Spirit says, the Scripture says, that one would come in the power and the Spirit of Elijah. Not that he would come personally. And so he corrects that teaching by saying, one will come in the Spirit and power of Elijah. And in fact, what you just now saw was not that coming of Elijah, but when my cousin John the Baptist burst on the scene, after 400 years of silence, now we've got a prophet again, and the prophet is saying it's time to turn back to God. And that prophet made the way smooth for me, and he made my appearance possible. When John the Baptist came crying in the wilderness with his message of turn back to God, he was announcing me. That was the spirit and power of Elijah. So yes, Elijah did come first. John was your Elijah. He did come. He, he's the one that you could identify this way. That Elijah figure will be one that 
you can identify because they will do to him, Jesus says, whatever they wish to. And what they had done to John is they had executed him. They had beheaded him. In fact, Jesus is still hurting from that reality. Even on this day as he recalls John the Baptist, that they had beheaded his cousin, who'd been the forerunner. Well, that's the Elijah problem for them. And Jesus solves that and lets them know Elijah has come. It was John. But, but, but back to their first problem. Though the scribes did not tell you the Messiah must die, the Scriptures do. And that's what he points out to them with his question. Yet how is it written of the Son of Man, Messiah, Jesus, me, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, they never imagined that Messiah would suffer or die. And so he begins to talk to them about that. Now, in his question and in this little connecting tissue between these two great events, there's some things that are very clear. It is clear that Jesus wants his followers to do several things. Number one, it's very clear that Jesus, through his question, wants his followers, listen, to think. He wants us to think. He wants us to think, to engage these neurons up there and get them boiling and connecting and making sense of what's happening. He wants us to think. Now, when Jesus asks us to think, he's asking for a very difficult thing. Thinking is not easy. I know that because most of the time, most people avoid thinking because it's hard. Jesus is asking for a difficult thing here. And in another place, Jesus will approach a bunch of people who are not thinking, and he will say to them, you know nothing. And he doesn't mean it as a compliment. Later on, Paul will say several times, I would not have you be ignorant, brothers and sisters. He places no premium on ignorance. We talk about ignorance as bliss, and Paul says, no, it's not. I would not have you be ignorant. There's no advantage to that. Last week, we looked in Mark chapter 7 in the 22nd verse at a thing that I called the catalog of destruction. We looked at that last week, and, and one of the, the characteristics of a life that's being destroyed is the last one that's mentioned, and it comes by way of summary in Jesus' list of that catalog of destruction. It's foolishness. To be foolish, not a good characteristic. But a foolish person is one who does not know and does not want to know. I don't know anything about it, but don't talk to me. I don't want to know. Because thinking is hard. And knowing comes with a price. And in that catalog of destruction, foolishness summarizes the entire list of things that will draw us away from God and force a wedge between Him and us. They're all a bunch of different kinds of sins. But by putting foolishness at the end of the list of destruction, he's telling us that to sin is to play the willfully ignorant fool if you get involved in perpetual sin. But to know, to think is hard. The fool is the one who says, I don't want to know, because thinking is hard. True thinking is difficult. The Bible will 
Encourage us to examine ourselves, to analyze ourselves, to probe ourselves, to look inward at ourselves, to think about our own motives. Examine yourself. And that's hard. It's hard to do. I brought uh, three advisors with me today. These guys sit on a bookcase near my desk, and that's what I call them. Uh, you know them as hear no evil, the three monkeys. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I call them my advisors, and sometimes when I'm stumped, I look at them and I say, well, boys, what would you do? But I bring these three advisors, the three monkeys, to you today because they are a perfect illustration of the way many Christians approach life. I don't want to know anything new. I already know what I believe. I already know what God expects of me. I already am secure in my opinions. I know what my attitudes are, and I know that my attitudes are always right. I know what God allows, and I know what God thinks about me. So I don't want anything new. I don't want to change my mind. I don't want anybody to try and change my mind. That's our default position, to not think, to cover our eyes and ears, to not take in anything new, to, to remain stuck where we are, not to change anything, not to grow. That's our default, you see. To not think is our default position. But Christ is calling us when He calls us to think. He's calling us to look at mystery. What he's asking here really is a why question. But you don't answer with a simple yes or no answer. But you have to analyze it. Why do you think the scriptures talk about me suffering so many things and being treated with contempt? Why do you think the scriptures talk about that? Well, you've got to think about that. That's a why question. Why? Those are the hardest kinds of questions. The other kinds of questions, what and who, how? Those are relatively easy questions to answer. People can show you and instruct you and teach you. We've got a bunch of teachers in this room, and that's what you do all day long. But you can learn things from other people in answer to your what questions. I, I, if you come to me and said, teach me how to throw a right cross, I can teach you that. I can teach anybody that over time. Even the most athletically uninclined can be taught how to do that over time. You could go to somebody like Danny Grijalva, and he can teach you how to, to weld two pieces of metal together so that you've got less than a quarter of an inch crack in there, but you've got a perfect weld. Carla could teach you how to take blood pressure and other vital signs and teach you how to interpret those and what those mean, you see. We've got musicians here that could teach you about the circle of fifths. We... We've got people here that could show you how to fix things. Ed could show you how to replace the brakes on a motorcycle. Those are all what questions. And though they may be complicated, people can teach you. You can learn those things. You, you, you could learn to play the piano. Noxie could teach you to play the piano. If you're willing, occasionally you get wrapped on the knuckles, she could teach you to play the piano. Those are relatively easy compared with the difficult why questions, you see. And when Jesus is asking us to think, it's the whys 
that he's asking us to think about. He's calling us into mystery, really. He's calling us to live with mystery because you can't always answer all the why questions. He's calling us into mysteries like the mystery of the Lord's Supper. What is that all about? He's calling us into mystery. Why, why, is, it, why is it easier for other people to get along and it seems to be so hard for me? Why did so-and-so have to die? Why does struggle never end for me? Why don't I hear from God? Why do bad guys win? Those are mysteries, you see. And Jesus calls us to think. He calls us into mystery. And for a believer, a mystery is something that you can look at again and again and again. A mystery is, is not something that you... You can't understand, but it's something that you can understand in new ways all the time. And Jesus is always calling us, in calling us to think, he's calling us into mystery, you see. We won't always have all the answers. We won't always have all the answers. And then there's the mystery of God himself. He represents himself as three in one. How can one be three? We probably should start at the other end of that equation and start with three. How can those three be one? But they are. There's the mystery of God Himself. God calls us into mystery. There's a song we sing, and He calls me deeper still. He does that, doesn't He? He calls me deeper still into what I can't see, into what I don't know yet. In the way we live life, we have made an idol out of knowing and out of knowledge. That's an idol that we set up for ourselves. If I can just know enough, the good people are the ones who are in the know. We made an idol out of knowing. But when you follow Christ, you don't always know everything. There are mysteries that you come to understand, but you understand it tomorrow different than you do today because it's just that deep and not knowing that's what he's after. If we can follow him, even though we don't know, that's faith. That's trusting. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, you see. It's an interesting passage talking about he calls us to think. It's very clear he wants us to think. There's an interesting passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about the importance of our minds and what the Lord wants us to do with our minds, 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, and we do, we're humans, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the pulling down of strongholds, the destruction of fortresses. And here's what it is. We are destroying speculations. That's talking about the mind, isn't it? He goes on to say, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. There's the mind again. And we're taking every thought, there it is again, every thought captive to obedience of Christ. He's interested in our mind. He calls us to think, you see. He calls us to think. But what are we supposed to think about? Jesus, when he asked this question, how is it, why is it written of the Son of Man, me, that I will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What it is he's calling us to think about? He's calling us to think about his word. It's written of me. Look at what's written about me. Think about that. Back to my monkeys. 
Back to hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Back to the monkeys. Sometimes we think that the best way to handle things is to shut out the world, to run and hide. Our grandbabies are to the age now where when I chase them around the house or the yard and I'm almost on them, I'm almost ready to get them, they'll put their hands over their eyes. That makes me disappear. The danger is past because their eyes are closed. That's the way many people approach problems. The best way is is just to run and hide. Block things out. That's a very juvenile way of doing things. It's the way of the monkeys just to block things out. But it's not the best thing. Sometimes the way we do that is we label everything. And once we get a label on everything, then we understand everything. And I don't need to learn anything new. I've got a label on everything and everybody. And that helps me just to dismiss it and get rid of it. And I retreat. Jesus prays a prayer on the night before he's betrayed. It says the exact opposite of the way we approach problems. We just want to retreat. Just shut me off from the world and all the problems. And Jesus prays and he says, Father, don't take them out of the world. I want you to keep them in the world. And take care of them in the world. But don't take them out. So running from our problems, hiding from them, putting our hands over our ears, And stopping the data from coming in, that's not the way to handle it. Don't take them out of the world, he says. Bad as the world may be, don't take them out. We're to engage the world. We're to to remember that the Proverbs tell us that wisdom is at the crossroads, at the very busiest of intersections. That's where we belong. That's where we belong thinking. That's where we need to think about his word in the world. I love what the 12th chapter of Romans says in the first couple of verses. It talks about how that happens. It says that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. God is no longer interested in dead sacrifices, a bunch of dead carcasses of animals. That's not what he's interested in. He wants a living sacrifice. You are the living sacrifice. He says, make yourself a living sacrifice. That's your reasonable service for all that he's done for you. And then he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the way our minds are transformed is by thinking about his word. The word of God is living and active and powerful. The written word is the counterpart to the living word, Christ. And just as Christ is alive, that word is alive and it will live in you. And when it lives in you, when you take it in, It changes things. It transforms. It changes your mind. It will change the way you think and the things you think about. We need to be transformed. And the Word is the thing that does that. That's why the Word doesn't answer every question that you've got. There are great holes. There are things that one day I'm going to go to the people that wrote this and I'm going to say, what did you mean by that? And why did you leave that out? And why did you leave me hanging? What's the rest of the story? There is a reason why the Word does not answer every question. And that's because it's been stepped down. You know what a transformer is? 
those big boxes that you see fixed to the top of a pole. JR, you know what those are. You probably took a dare one time and put your tongue on one. I doubt it because what those transformers are doing is they're, they're receiving deadly amounts of voltage and power. That if you tap that, you will die. And so they step it down. And they make it usable then in our houses to run our appliances and to cool and to heat and do all the things we need done. But if we took that in its raw form, it's too much. It has to be stepped down. That's what the Word of God is. It transforms you, but if you got all of the truth full on, you would blow up. You don't have the capacity to receive all of God's truth. And that's why God's word doesn't answer every question. One day he will. When you have the capacity to absorb it, he will. But for now, it's come to you in step-down form. It's still true, but it's in a way that you can handle it. Don't come to the word the way so many Christians come to it, as a, as a last resort. When I'm in trouble, I run to the Bible. But find yourself every day in God's Word. And try and make ample time that you can just let it wash over your mind. I'm not talking about spending a moment or two moments. I'm talking about spending a half hour at a time and more. And as you grow hungry for the things of God, it will grow to more. Because 30 minutes won't do it. That's the way you want to approach God's Word. Not just... Skipping through it, but deep reading. The Word says that about itself, we should study it to show ourselves approved. We should analyze it and probe it and question it and look deeply into it. And when we do that, it will change us. It will transform. So Jesus says, I want you to think, and I want you to think deeply about my Word because it will change us. I told some of you about my favorite uncle. He's now with Christ my Uncle Jack, as I get older, family tells me I'm more and more like Uncle Jack in the way I look and the way I act. But he was a tough guy. He was a man's man. He was a construction guy. He was a developer, a builder. He owned car lots. He raced cars. He liked anything that went fast. He was a tough guy. And in his day, he had been a hellraiser. He married my Aunt Betty, who was a as close to a saint as anybody I've ever known. In fact, she was the first Christian I knew anything about in our family. And he gave her a hard time. He made it hard for her to live the Christian life. He made it hard for her to go to church most of the time. He would make fun of it when she left her Bible laying out. And this went on year after year after year. In many ways, a very good man. But in that particular way, very difficult to live with. And he made it difficult for her. One day she heard him get up in the middle of the night. And he went downstairs. She didn't know what he was doing, but she thought she better leave him alone. And she came down in the morning and she found him sitting on the couch with her open Bible. The Bible that he had made fun of. That he had left bad notes in. That he had crumbled some of the pages in anger. He had that Bible open on his lap, and he was weeping. And as he had, throughout that night, read God's Word, he had wept his way to Christ. And later on, he would tell people, just as boldly as he had told them other things, he would tell them, 
God's word changed me. It changed me. Jesus wants us to think, and he wants us to think specifically about his word because his word has the power to transform our minds and to change who we are. It can change us from the inside out. There's a third thing. Jesus says, I want you to think. I want you to think about the word. But there's more. He says, I want you to think about what the Word tells you about His suffering. That's wrapped up in His question in verse 12. To think, to think about His Word, but specifically to think about what the Word says about what He went through, His suffering. It says He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. What do the Scriptures say? Well, let's look there. I think he had specifically in mind the 20, 22nd Psalm. 22nd Psalm opens with words that talk about his suffering that is much in the future. It's talking about his cross. And it's talking about the words he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 22nd Psalm says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Jesus dies of a broken heart. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Are you remembering what happened on the cross? The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what the Word says about His suffering. And Jesus says, I want you to think, and I want you to think about my Word, and I want you to think specifically about what does my Word say about suffering, my suffering. The 69th Psalm, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick, and I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none, and they also gave me gall, Rotten vinegar for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Think about what the Word says about His suffering. None's greater than Isaiah. Some people call Isaiah gospel number five because it contains so much of Christ, specifically so much of His suffering and death. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, He was despised and forsaken of men. It's talking about Him. And it calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, we despised him. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. And we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening, the punishment of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed in other words, he took the punishment. He took the punishment. His flesh was ripped. He was torn and he was crushed for us. And Jesus says, I want you to think about that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall upon him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like sheep that is silent before shears. So he did not open his mouth. 
the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he says, I want you to think about that. Think about that. You know, the conclusion we reach is an awful lot of people in Jesus' day missed who he was, even though they saw all of that suffering. You know why I think they missed it? Because nobody ever expected to see a Messiah, a Savior, God in the flesh, with spit on his face. And Jesus says, I want you to think about that. There's a passage, Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says, May it never be that I would boast. Because he's saying, and we could say the same thing, there's not much in myself to boast about. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord, through whom The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. There is a famous painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Three Crosses. And that's exactly what it depicts, three crosses. Christ in the middle, the thieves on either end. And as you look closely at that picture You look at the rabble that is gathered around that is crucifying Jesus and you see on the expressions of the faces a variety of emotions. Some are thrilled with what's happening. It's almost a satanic, demonic joy at the suffering on the third cross. But others are greatly distressed. Others are horrified. Some are laughing. There's a variety there. But if you look really closely, off to one side, off to the right, there's a solitary figure standing. You see, we look at the cross and we interpret it through a lens that says Jesus died for the world. He did. That He died for everybody. He did. That He paid the sins of all people of all times. He did. In fact, the greatest tragedy will be that some people will go into eternity lost and their sins are already paid for. He paid for everything. That's true. But we forget that we individually, personally have a role in what happens at the cross. And for that reason, you need to pay attention to the solitary figure off to the right. Because Rembrandt painted himself into the picture. Because he understood that he personally was involved at what happened at the cross. We personally are involved at what happened at the cross. And when we approach Jesus and we ask for forgiveness... We're not just asking forgiveness for the lying and the cheating, for the double dealing and the gossip and the laundry list of things that we may have done. But when we stand at the foot of the cross and we look at the crucified Savior, we're saying, I'm sorry, I put you there. 
Jesus says he wants us to think. And he wants us to think about his word. And he wants us to think about what his word says happened at the cross. He set us free at the cross. He set us free. He made everything right at the cross. Everything broken inside of us and in our world, he made it right. That's what happened at the cross. I want you to stand with me. The Bible says that Jesus positions himself in what, when you think about it, is a very odd place. He positions himself outside the door of our heart. And he paints a picture as vivid as anything Michelangelo or Rembrandt could have done. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. Crazy, really, because he's the God of the universe. He could push his way in. And there would be nobody that could fault him for that. There would be nobody that could say, you have no right here. But he knocks. And he knocks because he's just waiting for somebody to say, come in. If you go home today and you're sitting in the front room, you're relaxing and you look out the window and see a friend that you know well approach the door and knock, you may be tempted rather than get up from your easy spot to just yell, come on in. That's what Jesus is waiting for. Come on in. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.